to the Radical Reverend Show. And of course, as always, we are taping off-site. We're not in the radio station. If you are tuning in, you can hear this on any variety of platforms on podcast. The show's been on the air for 20 years plus. And of course, I'm your host, Sherry DeNovo. Uh, please, please uh, give to the station generously. It's the fundraising time, and you will hear announcements to that effect from the station. It's all online, of course. So uh, don't forget that the station is run by volunteers and it's been running and is the only alternative radio station left in the city right now. So give generously. Today, I'm really delighted to have our first of many, I'm hoping law and disorder panels, we're calling it. And uh, I have with me Andre Demise. Uh, what can we say? Most people know who he is. He's he's written for just about everything. We think of him now as a writer from Maclean's. He's also a community activist, founder of TXDL. He's a fellow at the Nathan Center. And welcome, Andre, to the Radical Reverend Show. How are you doing? And I, I have to lodge my uh, extreme discomfort with the title activist. I, I would call myself an advocate, but I don't know that I would. Oh, okay. I, I, I tend to follow the lead of activists. I don't know that I would call myself one. Ah, okay. Well, duly noted. No worries. And, and of course, we also have with us Joshua Seely Harrington. Uh, he's a doctoral candidate at Columbia. He's a lawyer at Power Law. Uh, he's appeared at all levels of the court system in Canada, including the Supreme Court, um, multi-published uh, multi author, and uh, first time on the show as well. So welcome, Joshua. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. My pleasure to be here. So let's get right into it. Um, uh, the uprising has been happening for a while now. Uh, certainly, we've already seen its impact, in particular, on the way it seems like the whole world is looking at policing right now. So I want to talk about that right off the bat. There's, you know, of course, the hashtag defund police. What do we mean by that? Do we want to get rid of police forces? Do we want to defund them? What do we want to do? Let me throw it to you first, Joshua. Yeah, I, I think that there is uh, a really important conversation that's getting a lot of sustain and finally some mainstream attention around defunding and police abolition. Uh, and, and I think in like simple terms, there's a lot going on in the conversation, but I think in simple terms, the idea is about uh, or an important insight from the idea is about whether or not we want a posture of considering police as something that's really capable of reform, or looking historically whether or not we realize that this is actually an institution that's been historically and currently deployed for uh, a significant amount of anti-Black violence uh, and is one that's ultimately not effective at dealing with public safety and therefore shouldn't be used anymore. Yeah, I, I just want to interject here. I, I do a, another panel on mainstream radio on Fridays, and one of the topics was the RCMP in Canada. We've uh, just uh, been focused on that with the the beating up. I mean, that's what it was of Alan Adam, um, chief mm -hmm. up here, and uh, and of course their long history of and their very founding purpose of indigenous violence. And you had some of the top brass there saying uh, there's no, well, at first they said there's no racism in our system and then, of course, took it back really quickly. Um, so just to contextualize it a little bit in the Canadian sense here, too, um, 
that seems to be top of mind. Uh, Andre, what are you thinking about when you're thinking about police? Uh, the first thing I think about when I think about police is how we arrived at our modern policing system in the first place. The founding of the civilian police force came from Sir Robert Peel, who was the uh, the Home Secretary uh, in Britain, and uh, he ran um, the Irish Constabulary, the uh, the Peace Preservation Force, and that was created in 1814. It was essentially an occupying army in Ireland. So when we ask the question as to whether police are supposed to be uh, community service uh, people, whether they're supposed to be working with the community or whether they're an occupying army, the answer is always they're an occupying army because the the model that uh, that our modern system of policing was formed off of was an occupying army. You know, uh, when we think about the RCMP, I think about the fact that the RCMP was an imperial military regime. When you think about the police in the United States, you got to think about the fact that the police were lawful slave catchers. And all of these, again, uh, drew their inspiration from uh, the, uh, the British occupation of Ireland. So there is no there is no scenario in which police are community servants. They will always, regardless of if they live in the community, which in most cases they don't, whether they uh, get along with the community and people know them on a first name basis, which oftentimes they do not, they still function as an occupying army in in in, in local neighborhoods. So what should we do about it? What 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 is the demand? What do we want to see? Well, when people talk about, I mean. We, it's it's gone from abolish the police to defund the police, and this is this is all tied into um, the elimination of the carceral state. So getting rid of getting rid of the carceral politics that that govern uh, what we call law and order or justice, meaning that uh, contact with the police oftentimes lead, uh, just in your contact with the police can uh, shunt you into a system that reduces your opportunities, lowers your income levels, even lowers your lifespan. Right now, I think it's one in every three black boys born are going to have some contact with the police state. That's at least in the United States. In Canada, we don't really know those stats because we don't collect stats very well. Uh, but we do know that um, the uh, the carceral state itself has an incredibly harmful and deleterious effect on black communities, on indigenous communities, on Latino communities, et cetera. And uh, what does that produce? Well, it produces plenty of profit. It produces uh, plenty of paychecks. So even in the, the non-private prison industrial complex, private prisons only compose about 9% of US prisons. We do know that in the public prison landscape and in the Canadian public prison landscape, there are many people making a hell of a lot of money off of the prison industrial complex. And the raw product for this prison industrial complex is human labor and uh, essentially human trafficking. And that happens to fall on the most marginalized and most vulnerable sectors of the population, which tends to be black people, tends to be indigenous people, tends to be Latino people, uh, people of color at least, uh, tends to be trans people, tends to be queer people, et cetera. Uh, so when we talk about uh, defunding, we're looking at diverting resources away from the police for services that they were never intended to manage in the first place. First and foremost, and what comes to people's minds very quickly, is uh, mental health services. Uh, when police come in contact with somebody who is experiencing a mental health episode, oftentimes the mere fact that they're there in the first place, even though they're trained in de-escalation techniques, uh, the fact that they're there with a the gun and a badge escalates the situation regardless. And we've seen three very high-profile incidents in the last four weeks or so in, in Canada uh, one with Regis Korchinski Paquette, which inspired a, uh, a, a black, uh, the Not One More Black Life March. Uh, Caleb and Joko at London, Ontario. Uh, DeAndre Campbell in Brampton, Ontario, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We do know that the services that the police are tasked with are not services that function well in a society where people do have mental illnesses, where they are marginalized, vulnerable, et cetera. Yeah. I just, I want to ask you a question because when I put much of what you're saying out on Twitter. I got one interesting uh, tweet back 
uh, who challenged me on the mental health piece only. And I thought it was kind of interesting putting my mad pride hat on for a minute. But but she said, you know, and then if the mental health folk get in there, then they'll be incarcerated for even longer with less recourse. And I kind of just want to put the mad pride piece out there too. But I'm going to throw it to Joshua. Joshua, what do you think needs to happen with our police? Yeah, no, I, I, I largely echo Andre in terms of uh, the, the need to develop effectively non-police solutions for the myriad circumstances and social harms that exist in society. Uh, and, and, and I think another way of thinking about it is, is acting, more react, acting more proactively rather than reactively with the ways in which we resource our communities and how we respond to those communities. Because, I mean, progressive scholars have been arguing forever about the need to deal with these types of, uh, you know, social determinants of crime in very different ways. Uh, and we're just finally seeing a mainstream engagement with uh, these these topics that have been very thoroughly researched and theorized and explored and that we've known, I think, for a very long time are much more effective ways of, of organizing society and much more effective ways of promoting racial justice. So just, I'm going to ask you this, um, though, too. I mean, I guess what you're absolutely, the social determinants of, of health and well-being have been known for decades. I mean, we've been talking about this for, you know, half a century. But I mean, at the end of the day, partly what I'm hearing and uh, people are saying is like, where the hell's the progress? Like, uh, especially where policing is concerned. Um, what do we do with, you know, clearly justified anger and justified uprising about the lack of progress, even though all of this theory has been out there, even though in the academies, everybody kind of knows this, um, but it's it's just not, we don't see it. We don't see it on our streets. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, there's a great piece in the New York Times, I think yesterday on, on police abolition, uh, and it talked about how kind of conservative and liberal reforms perform a counterinsurgent function when it comes to police violence and ensuing protests. And, and I think that's what it is. You know, we see a cycle. Uh, and I mean, there's lots of cycles we see generally with racial justice, but there's, uh, there's a problem, there's police violence, there's protests, and then there's like a narrow palliative that's offered uh, such that people kind of, not everyone, but some people forget. They think that some of the problem's been solved and ultimately the problem's been as bad or it has been in some ways worse over time. And so I think the crucial thing right now is maintaining pressure in terms of advancing a radical vision of uh, not reform, but re, you know, reimagining justice within North America. Uh, and I, I hope we can do that because we're always going to get offered, you know, Biden just said throwing way more money at police. Trudeau's talking about body cameras. Uh, and so they're going to do the, the, the least they can to maintain the police state as it currently exists. Uh, because we don't typically have, you know, radically visionary politicians who are ultimately running the show. Uh, I, I, I'm going to throw it back to you, Andre. In terms of body cams, um, so my response to that again on this panel was, um, you know, we don't want to watch the violence, we want to stop the violence. Um, and quite frankly, that's just more money, as you're saying, Joshua, into the police force and, and uh, I, I think what we're all asking for is a whole lot less money, at the very least, into the police force. Um, Andre, so so to you, what what about that? You know, so the freak out that we're hearing also, you know, in the, in some of the right wing mainstream media about, you know, oh my God, you know, if we don't have police, you know, there'll be anarchy, you know, like you know, who will we call? Like who will we call if there's violence happening? Like you know, just and, and just to I envision now what 
what might it look like if we did abolish the police force or if we certainly majorly defunded them and demilitarized them? Um, speak to that if you could. Well, uh, we do know, at least from American stats, uh, again, Canadian stats are very hard to parse, but we do know that uh, vast uh, majority of people that are in U.S. Uh, jails and prisons um, are not there for any violent crime whatsoever. And many of them haven't even been convicted yet. Obviously, if they're in jails, they're there because they haven't yet met cash bail. So we do know that, uh, at, at least from the U.S. context, most of the people that are currently being incarcerated uh, either have been incarcerated for a, uh, a crime that is not one of the, uh, the categories that people tend to bring up when you talk abolition. They say, they say, well, what about murderers? What about rapists? What about uh, people who break and enter and rob and so forth? Well, the, the thing is, for the most part, th those, that's not who's incarcerated. It's just about everybody else. Uh, I think it's something to the effect of like, uh, uh, it was just over 22% of people um, that are currently incarcerated have been convicted of, of those types of heinous crimes that we're talking about. And then the remainder, you know, make up the remainder of the prison industrial complex. What does abolition look like? Well, I don't like to use words like radical reimagining, even though that's generally where it goes first. Uh, when we talk about, uh, for example, getting back to people who are experiencing mental health episodes, well, we we do know that uh, in the mental in the mental health uh, category, you still have systemic racism. So it's not as though this is going to solve the problem altogether. But at the very least, we don't have the likelihood of escalation to deadly conflict when let's say a nurse and a social worker or some sort of uh, crisis trained intervention specialist shows up rather than somebody with a gun and a badge. In mental health facilities, again, even though systemic racism does exist, and people are often uh, held against their will for lengthy periods of time, at least when there are conflicts, they can be talked down or at least resolved without the need for fatal violence. But then there's also matters of homelessness. Rather than uh, ticketing and harassing homeless people, which is often uh, one of the first contacts that homeless people have with the state is through the police, well, let's look at housing. Let's make sure that we can actually house uh, people who are currently houseless. When we talk about things like traffic measures, uh, in Toronto, the uh, the Vision Zero project, which has just been an utter joke, which was that was supposed to reduce pedestrian fatalities down to zero, and it, it's actually gone on an uptick because, uh, according to the Toronto Star, police have essentially gone on a sort of work to rule campaign, an unofficial work to rule campaign. So rather than paying police to do traffic enforcement, redirect the funds towards infrastructure, make sure that the intersections and the streets are shaped such that people don't go bombing through them at 60, 70 kilometers an hour. Make sure that bike lanes are separated from driving lanes, not by paint, but by concrete. Uh, making sure that there are traffic calming measures in small neighborhoods where, where people, uh, if they want to use a side street to get away from traffic, use residential streets as their thoroughfares. When it comes to things like sex work, you know, making sure that uh, sex workers are protected and not being victimized at the effect of police. I remember reading a story a couple of days ago that an officer was charged with, I think, trafficking uh, sex from like a 16-year-old, and that, that officer was suspended with pay while the investigation was pending. Like there, there's a multitude of factors where, where police touch on in just about every area of our society. And where it comes to investigating violent crime and prosecuting offenders, which we can have a conversation as to whether that's the model that we want to continue on with or not. 
But we do know that the vast majority of the work they do doesn't have anything to do with that. It's essentially become a grease trap for all the remainder of societal problems that we don't want to deal with. Everything else that we're very comfortable defunding, all the way from education, i.e. school resource officers, traffic, sex work, homelessness, which we've already talked about. These are areas where because we don't deal with them as a society, we've essentially shunted that responsibility over to police and then act shocked when these are the results. Uh, thank you. I'm speaking to Andrew Demise. He's a writer. He's an advocate. Uh, he's a fellow at Nathanson Center and also Joshua Silly Harrington, doctoral candidate at Columbia Lawyer at Power Law um, and also uh, an author. And of course, um, uh, we're talking on the first Law and Disorder panel, the Radical Reverend Show. Again, a note to be generous. This is our fundraising week. You can donate online. Please keep the station going. Um, Okay, so uh, as you were speaking, Andre, I was thinking, but wait a minute, wait a minute, aren't the police uh, unionized? Um, aren't these, uh, to anybody who's involved in the union movement, are these our, our brothers and your sisters and others you know, <laughs> in the police de department? Aren't we supposed to be, uh, you know, solidarity and all that? First of all, police unions are supposed to be illegal. We have police associations, and the reason that they're called associations is because technically unions are not legal. Uh, and they are not brothers and sisters. They're not comrades. Police are strike breakers. Police are agents of the state. They're the enforcers that are tasked with the monopoly of violence that the state has to offer. They're not comrades. They're not uh, brothers and sisters in uh, the working class. They're the enemies of the working class. And uh, the AFL-CIO put out a statement yesterday saying that it's going to be essentially up to police unions to hold their members accountable and they have a role to play in anti-racism, which I, I had to laugh. That was an absolute joke. There's a reason that people call the AFL-CIO the AFL-CIA for a reason. And that's because essentially they, they're, they're very happy uh, to, uh, to, to collect the dues. They're very happy to, to have the association. So the, the question is, you know, are you for the workers or are you for the agents of the state? I've never heard of any other union where the, the rank and file workers in the management occupy the same space and they advocate for each other. That's an absolute joke that police officers have a union. Okay, but but what? Let's Canadianize it for a moment. What about up here, the you know so-called kinder and gentler nation? Unquote. Um, what about that, uh, Joshua? Weigh in. Uh, yeah. So I think. Um, the police union discussion is interesting because it's it's one that's meant to kind of superficially bring the left in contrast, you know, in contradiction with itself in terms of its own ideological commitments. I, I think that there's, I agree loosely with what Andre is saying, but I also think there's an interesting question as to whether or not our position on police unions is motivated by police or motivated by unions. You know, a lot of the problems that we're identifying are ultimately endemic to police forces, what they've been historically used for and what they do now. Um, and whereas unions are operating on the axis of kind of employment, uh, police are ultimately operating on a different axis, which is disseminating a lot of and, and impacting a lot of marginalization of society. So I, I think there's there's some wrinkles in that conversation that are somewhat difficult. Uh, but I ultimately think that um, police unions are a substantial hurdle to how we're able to actually engage with uh, not reform, but really rethinking how we engage with uh, racial justice issues. Just before we leave the police issue, and, and we will, um, but I, I want to look at, you know, just this, let, let's bring it down to just like the human element, especially in the States. Uh, there was a comment in New York, you know, when uh, 
he saw somebody standing uh, defending the police and there was nothing but white faces behind him in uniform, when in fact everybody knows that that's not the face of the New York uh, City Police Department, for example. Uh, there's lots of people of color, um, lots of Hispanics in the force. Um, up here in Canada, there are indigenous, I mean, not as many, but you know, in the police force. Um, and let's face it, it's a good job for kids that, you know, don't have many of them a lot of future. Um, you know, what can we not make allies? I guess what what we're hearing too, you know, coming out of the mainstream is can we not somehow reach across this divide to those who we might have something in common with in the forces, including queer folk? Um, any hope there, uh, Andre? No. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a more clear-cut answer or a, an elaborate answer for you. The answer is no. Uh, and, and even in the Canadian context, you know, uh, unions are not technically legal, which is why they have uh, associations. Uh, but as to, as to what the makeup of the force looks like, my question is, okay, so let's say that there is a, a wildcat strike of garbage workers. And uh, who is going to arrive to, uh, to break up the strike, who's going to arrive to cross the picket lines or even to break up the picket lines. It doesn't matter whether the faces of the people are uh, black and Hispanic and queer faces, it doesn't really matter. The, what matters is their function. And, uh, and within the role of the, uh, the state and within the role of capital, their function is to destroy what essentially unions stand for. So the it's to me, it's a first order contradiction. You can't really square the two. It doesn't really matter to me what the uh, the ethnic or the, uh, the the demographic or diverse makeup is of the force. It's like I said, it was modeled off of occupying armies, slave car slave catchers, and plains clearers. And uh, the the fact that they've done a good job of diversifying means absolutely nothing to me. Almost less than. The fact that uh, the Department of Defense has uh, contractors that at right now are at record levels uh, for women CEOs, which is, I mean, fantastic. So what, what difference does that make to somebody in, in, in Yemen or Sudan? The bombs that are being dropped on them were commandeered by a woman CEO. It makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. So uh, the idea of trying to bring the intersectional conversation in, uh, into policing, no, it doesn't square with me. Joshua, any words on that? Yeah, I, I, I think that returns to this idea of, of, of ref, you know, certain, form, certain reforms playing a counterinsurgent function. I think ultimately if we see this as an institution that hasn't been able to be effectively reformed for, for its entire existence, then those types of reaching across the aisle gestures are ultimately things that are going to be counterproductive to the broader movement of abolition. I also think one other thing I just wanted to mention, uh, returning to what Andre said earlier, you know, there's... When we look at cr the criminal justice system, there is uh, kind of mythology around its need to keep all these really bad people away and isolated from society. But I think another way to look at that issue is in terms of burden of proof. So people will, like one of the more emotional examples people will often bring up in terms of the need for a robust carceral state is uh, things like sexual violence, things like rape. And, and I think why it's, uh, I, I think burden of proof is really important in discussing this type of question because ultimately what they're holding out as an argument is we need to maintain this system because we need to punish these people. And I, I would flip the question and say, are we effect, you know, setting aside the argument of how we ought to be responding to sexual violence, is the current system even working at all anyways, right? Like when we look at things like sexual violence, it's wildly under-prosecuted. We have the current experience of victims being entirely ineffective, which is why there's no reporting. We have 
police officers themselves at staggering rates committing sexual violence in the course of these prosecutions. So it's not just about whether or not some kind of replaced or new conception of justice is going to be effective at, sexu- at dealing with things like sexual violence. Is, is the current system effective? And it obviously isn't ba- based on every empirical metric. So you can't really resist abolition from the standpoint of wanting to handle sexual violence when the current system isn't doing it at all anyways. Uh, that's a great uh, segue into uh, another topic, and I'm going to talk to it ne- next about uh, something that's happened recently in Ontario. This is uh, the intoxication as a defense um, case, which raised, I think, some 300,000 signatures pretty quickly overnight, as, uh, particularly from uh, women's groups um, and people on the left saying this isn't okay. But before we get to that one last thing, because it, it's something you say before we leave the police, because good God, I mean, it's all about, it's been about police and, and what we're going to do about police in the last couple of weeks. Um, I, I just want to, you know, throw this out as an old socialist here. Um, and, and looking at the history of revolution and uprisings and revolt against the state, which I think we're all on the same page, something's going to happen to capitalism. Um, and to, to look at a class analysis of this, in, in past revolutions, there has been that moment I'm thinking, I guess, most recently, maybe of Chavez in Venezuela and others, where somebody with a military background or, you know, the military or the cops turn their guns around the other way. Um, is there no hope to, like, in the military, in the police, to kind of speak um, to that sentiment? Uh, certainly happened in Vietnam, you know, um, where, you know, troops said no more and, uh, and, and for, in various ways. Uh, just just throwing that out, uh, Andre. Uh, well, in the history of revolution, uh, there's essentially three components. Uh, there's there's money, there's arms, and there's people. So y- if you have the money and you have the arms, then you can win. If you have the arms and the people, you can win. But there's only one of those uh, there's only one of those components where you can win on the force of that one alone, and that's people. If there are enough people that are throwing themselves behind a common cause, then it does end up moving the money. It does end up moving the people who have the arms. At the time when, uh, as you say, the uh, the Venezuelan or not a revolution per se, but uh, the uh, the drastic reform, which ended up causing essentially like a soft revolution, uh, in the course of uh, the uh, the Mozambican revolution, the Golden Revolution, etc. What you find is that the uh, the military sides with the people because they see that there is a popular will for drastic reform, if not for revolution. So would I count on the military or police officers uh, essentially training their guns on the other side right now? No, absolutely not. Because what you have are... what you have are state forces and government actors. If you want to talk about, let's say, uh, uh, Trudeau, Donald Trump, et cetera, uh, where they're very happy to placate what's needed from uh, the police state, from the military forces. They're very happy to stroke their egos, to give them latitude, to do whatever is needed to be done to maintain uh, the existence of capital. So what you what is required is a massive uprising of the people. That's why I call the uprisings that are happening right now, I don't say that they're protests, I say that they're rebellions. Essentially, it does it does serve the function of a rebellion. And, you know, people talk about, well, you know, X amount of, I think it was uh, 69% of people support even the police as is. Only something like 29% of people uh, have any sort of support for uh, defunding or abolishing or any sort of like drastic reform for the police. But I think that misses the point because the 
the public will is not fixed in concrete. It doesn't exist as any fixed point in, for the remainder of time. Public opinion changes, and the entire point of uprisings is to change the popular will to do something that they wouldn't have done last year or even a decade ago. Uh, so as to whether we can count on the, the police and the military at some point coming to their senses, I say right now the answer is no. What's required first is a popular uprising. Perhaps we'll leave it on that note and thank you. I want to throw it back to Joshua, though, on the intoxication defense, uh, being a lawyer that you are. Um, enlighten us. What do you think? Yeah, no, this case is really interesting and, and was, I mean, the commentary surrounding the case was complicated. So, I, I mean, distilled for the purpose of this discussion, right, we have a decision uh, that is dealing with the automatism defense, uh, which is uh, kind of misunderstood as people being let off the hook for violent offenses by virtue of being very drunk. Uh, you know, automatism is this exceptionally high threshold, uh, which even recent case law, um, based on the factual evidence presented there, courts are finding that it just can't even be reached by virtue of drinking alcohol. So uh, the key point is that it's a really narrow means of avoiding legal culpability. Um, so it's important first to kind of situate the case in its actual factual and doctrinal context. Um, the fallout was interesting afterwards. So there's a lot of uh, feminist organizations and feminist speakers who really set about the decision. Um, and I think there's two points that are really important to keep in mind. One is that part of this was driven by bad reporting. Uh, I would say uh, uh, even reckless reporting. There were a lot of people posting about how this essentially licensed um, drunk assaults on women. Um, and that's bad because it's inaccurate, but it's also bad because obviously we deal with a, with a criminal justice system that's very ineffective at dealing with, uh, with sexual violence. Um, and things like underreporting, which are a really big problem with that system, are obviously exacerbated by people uh, and, and often women having an understanding of the criminal justice system that, well, if he was drunk, then I, then I don't have a, uh, a means of, of pursuing this claim. So that's bad. In terms of good reporting, you know, people who are a bit more nuanced in terms of the fact that this is about uh, automatism, but that, you know, feminists can still be concerned even if the case is legally narrow because it's a defense that could be advanced because the possibility of that defense in itself could undermine uh, people reporting. I think that's the real takeaway from the decision. You know, we, we have a criminal justice system which is really failing in the context of sexual violence. And so even if certain defenses are quite narrow, I think there's an important conversation around uh, the optical impact of uh, these types of conversations on survivors of sexual violence um, and how these types of defenses could be deployed um, in cases going forward. Uh, so, it, it, yeah, I hear you. Um, however, like there's, you know, people like Jill Andrews and Farrah Khan have uh, spoken very um very stridently about this and actually spurred on the re reaction to it. Um, Andre, any words on this before we move on? I will defer to uh, Joshua's expertise on the matter. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And Joshua, trust me, I hear you. Um, uh, I have too many friends who are in the criminal defense business <laughs> to not hear you. But um, but yeah, at the same time, it, it, it certainly, the, the message did not come out that way. You know, the message came out that this is open season. And that's yeah. I think, how a lot of women reacted. Let's let's move on to um, uh, we're still in COVID. We're opening up. Um, people are dying. Oh, yeah, still uh, people are being forced back to work and uh, people, you know, large chains are taking away the 
paltry little increase they gave to their employees on the basis of, oh, okay, everything's fine. Um, I'm exaggerating, of course. But what about law and disorder in the time of COVID? Um, Andre, let's throw it to you. And in light of the uprising, um, you know, you see thousands of people, you know, that virologists are telling us out of the thousands of people even wearing masks and without being able to social distance that this is going to result in more cases. Um, and of course, the more cases are probably going to be people of color. Um, what to do in the time of COVID? Well, here's, we've had almost every means of political dissent taken away from us. So through surveillance capitalism, we find it already difficult to even have conversations about what's to be done about uh, the role of states playing, with, uh, what's to be done about capitalism. What are, what are some means to effectively organize against uh, like just this gradual and continued like uh, uh, strengthening of state power, the strengthening of the power of capital. What can we do to resist? How can we resist imperialism? We, we were already on a downward trajectory on that even before the pandemic broke out in the first place. And now we've essentially had uh, one of the final means of social dissent, which is the, uh, the protest, is gradually being taken away from us. We we can't get out. Uh, we can't organize face to face. We we can't sit down in a coffee shop and have a conversation. There's there's no means by which, at least normally, that you can get together as a a community for a meeting. We have to do so over uh, Zoom or Skype or uh, even uh, Twitter and Facebook. Any any number of these platforms that are designed to sell things and track people. So. As it already stands, I think there was already a heightened amount of anxiety around uh, political dissent and protests in the first place. But because the state cannot stop itself from doing what it does, we end up scrolling through our social media feeds one morning and seeing a man being executed in the street by a police officer via suffocation over the course of eight minutes and 46 seconds. I think for a lot of people, that was just entirely too much to handle. I think people were already being... Uh, uh, pushed to that to that edge uh, by the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. They were already being pushed there by the uh, the no-knock raid that resulted in the shooting death of Breonna Taylor while she lay asleep in her bed by police officers. I think, I think we've just gotten to a point where people are willing to risk their lives and willing to risk their health and safety to lodge their dissent against the state. And what I anticipate is going to be a further... Uh, a like further restrictions against uh, political protest, but... I mean, what else, what other choice do we have? Yeah, Joshua. Yeah, I think that um, I, what I've witnessed, and I, I mean, I'd be curious what Andre thinks about this and what you think about this, but in, I, I think that the recent organizing that's been happening in spite of COVID has been, uh, has been drawing the conversation towards certain issues in criminal justice that I think many advocates in those areas just didn't think we'd be going to at this point in time, uh, because you know, you know, defunding prison abolition was seen as so unmainstream, and, and and this connects to Andre's point earlier about the capacity for uprising, not not only to reflect social attitudes, but to influence and create different social attitudes. So, you know, in my view. I think that, and my hope is that these movements, you know, keep pushing, that pressure continues because despite COVID, you know, it was um, unexpected and came about uh, and was and was obviously very harmful specifically for black communities, but um, it's not the only problem that we're dealing with. Uh, we have things like systemic police violence uh, across North America. And so my hope is that you know, we don't have something like these palliatives offered to quell the support for these movements, because what we're seeing, at least what we saw in New York, where I live right now, is that 
the movements were just large enough that, you know, people were starting to feel anxious. People were starting to worry about, not people generally, like that those in power were starting to worry about, you know, are we going to be able to quell this, this movement with the modest gestures that we've made before? And I, my hope is that despite COVID, we, we continue making pushes until we see real structural changes that are actually being brought in uh, because that's ultimately where, you know, that's a, a critical way that movements can actually create change and that they can speak to positions in power because they're not going to want to do that otherwise. I'm interested, Joshua, just before I let you go on this topic, though, um, in, in issue, the issue of sort of civil rights, human rights uh, in the era of COVID, um, you know, they've, we see borders closing, you know, immigration shut, you know, being shut down. We see, you know, people talking about, uh, I think Andre's earlier point about, you know, ticketing homeless people, um, uh, et cetera. Uh, I mean, there's lots of kind of pushing at the very seams of what we take as our civil liberties in some senses uh, because of this virus. And not to mention, of course, the horrors, the long-term care horrors where, you know, lawsuits are already coming forth about uh, the fact that these places generated a lot of them by profit or some in one way or another um, have resulted in deaths. Uh, direct deaths, but but uh, you know, it, looking at the issue of civil rights and a virus, um, uh, any thoughts about that? Like, where is it okay to go to um, to keep us safe and not to go past? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Canada and the United States are an interesting juxtaposition in terms of civil liberties. Like, there's a, there's there's two very kind of related but different conversations. Where where in the United States we have a, a what we perceive to be a more absolute view on those liberties. And in Canada, we kind of conceptualize it as something that could be in a tailored and reasonable way limited. Um, and so there's different kind of approaches to those issues. I, I think that uh, in times where we have really strong distrust in government, uh, that idea in the United States that liberty is really important uh, can be really important because uh, because of the need to not let the government, you know, selectively or tactically uh, limit people's liberties. Um, that's why we're seeing, you know, protest bans like the one in Alberta. Uh, that's why we're seeing governments being hypocritical in terms of uh, people's um, people going in public and violating um, curfews and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think uh, whereas in Canada, we have these kind of like reasonable limits and it depends on our, our level of trust in government and it depends on, uh, what these movements are being deployed for. So I, I think it's a tough conversation. I think ultimately, you know, these different liberties and these different rights that we exercise within democratic societies are, have to be, you know, vetted in context and have to be understood in terms of, you know, how they're being used. And so I think it's a really complicated conversation. Andre, what do you say to this? There's actually one thing that's kind of like uh, uh, kicking around the back of my mind here. And that's that, um, what is the... Uh, uprising going to accomplish if it continues on some of the current trajectories. I mean, I, I won't say on a current trajectory because there are, there are there are multiple, but one of them that I've seen is uh, one that's taken the conversation away. Like when you talk about like borders, when you talk when you talk about uh, you know people in long term care facilities and so you're talking about vulnerable people. 
you're talking for the most part about people that belong to the working class, uh, people that are, I would say, uh, much more highly vulnerable to, uh, to infection, uh, not because of their uh, age per se, uh, but because of the, uh, the categories, like the, the categories that they occupy within society, period, what neighborhood they live in, uh, what class they belong to, et cetera. One thing that I've seen that's really starting to disturb me is the corporatization of this conversation. So we're no longer, we're, we're not having conversations about uh, who are the most vulnerable. We're also not having conversations uh, in, well, we, we are, but not to the same extent that we were two weeks ago, conversations about who is most susceptible to police violence, et cetera. So we're seeing, we we're seeing a confluence of these two things that sparked off the, uh, the uprising in the first place. And yet we're, we're gradually seeing a dissipation of that conversation. Now it's becoming corporatized. So companies are talking about what they can do in response to the COVID crisis. We're talking about whether companies should be offering hazard pay still. We're talking about what it is that companies can be doing to pitch in and do their part. We're also talking about what companies can be doing to diversify, whether their boards are diverse enough, whether their uh, their employee base is diverse enough. So what, what I've noticed is a, uh, a, a gradual transition of this conversation away from what can we do as a society to what are the market-based solutions to these problems. That I have a huge problem with. And I think it began after the uh, the Blackout Tuesday event, which was uh, last week Tuesday. Uh, it began in the music industry that uh, you know music companies were going to talk about you know what part they play in systemic racism and and how they've contributed, et cetera. But now we're seeing a co-optation of the conversation, such that now we've placed it into the hands of private markets uh, to determine how to combat racism and how to uh, how, how to do their part to combat COVID. That's something that I'm extremely troubled with because once you hand something over to the market, it's it's hard to ever get it back. It's hard it's hard to uh, take or take back that part of the conversation. If we want to talk about like which companies you consume or which ones that you'll support, which ones that you'll uh, pay money to because they've been paying their employees fairly or because they've got a diverse enough board or whether you're not going to do that. That frightens me because it, it basically hands over the power of the conversation uh, to companies, hands over the, uh, the, 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 the power that people have over to capital markets. And as I said, there are three factors that, that, uh, that, will, that will take place during the course of a revolution. There's money, there's homogenous people. And when I see people handing over their power over to money, that doesn't lead anywhere good. Yeah. Uh, Andre, uh, segueing from that, I want to keep with you on uh, the issue of white guilt. And I'll I'll lead off with, so I was walking past, I won't name names here, um, but a a very wealthy private club, let's put it that way, that Mm -hmm. nobody I know could possibly afford to ever join, (laughs) that had a big sign up that said Black Lives Matter. (laughs) Now, I would like eat my hat if uh, even close to 1% of their membership is uh, our people of color. But having said that, uh, just very quickly on the topic of, I mean, it's a whole conversation in itself, but white guilt. What do those words mean for you? Uh, the most useless emotion I could possibly imagine. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty succinct. Um, <laughs> Joshua, white guilt. Uh, yeah, so I think that there's, so there's two things. On white guilt, I think that there is, like, ultimately in the con- in the broader conversation of racial justice, I think that there's there has to be a prioritization of how we approach issues. And I think that whenever there's something that grabs the fore, like white guilt or white privilege, and uh, and that is because of scarce attention or resources, taking the place of material change for uh, systemic disadvantage for marginalized communities, it's it's net negative because of that distraction. Um, the other thing that I wanna say, just responding to what Andre said earlier, I, I agree with the issue of corporatization. Uh, 
in these types of movements. And I think this performative allyship is often more hypocrisy and audacity than solidarity. Uh, there's been some really egregious examples recently of who's hopped onto the Black Lives Matter movement in terms of organizations like the NFL. Oh, do tell. Do the tell. NFL <laughs> tweeting support for Black Lives. Uh, like, I, I, I fell out of my chair when I saw that tweet. Absolutely unbelievable. But like, even more frustrating than the NFL is something like Trudeau taking a kneel for Black Lives mm-hmm. um, as the as the head policymaker within our democratic society. It's 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 again, this is an issue of distraction, right? Like, and it's an issue of palliative. There is it's really frustrating to see performative gestures generally and hypocritically, but especially from those who actually hold the power to create the systemic change that these kneels and that these blackouts are actually related to. Uh, and I think that's just, it's unbelievable. And what's really annoying is that it actually works. You know, we see, and that's the problem of this corporatization. You see police officers hugging protesters across America. And if you Google that, the vast majority of news articles are talking about how this is a great way forward and a bridge between different warring communities. Yeah, that's uh, that's what in, in cults, in, in studying cults, that's what's called love bombing. That is uh, when a member of the cult is starting to come to their senses and become aware that they're in a harmful organization and they're making up their mind to leave, but other members of the cult notice this, then they will shower them with love and praise and affection. And well, uh, listen, we're, we were actually thinking of placing you in a higher rank within the organization. And, and no, don't leave now. We actually have so many plans for you. You're going to love what we have in store. And that's exactly what this is. This is essentially uh, love bombing by corporations in the state to people who know that they're being gaslit. Uh, when, when, when your, um, when your movement and the gestures and the aesthetics of it can be co-opted, then you know, you know that it is starting to become no longer revolutionary per se, not to say that the, the sentiment behind it isn't revolutionary, but when, uh, the state, when large companies feel comfortable saying the thing that they've needed to say, that without actually doing the things that they needed to do, then you realize it's becoming co-opted. There's not a uh, a push that's caused the NFL to suddenly value black lives. It's just that the NFL is willing to say, we value black lives. Now, are they actually going to take the actions required to demonstrate that they value black lives? Are they going to, let's say, stop contacts within the NFL? Are they willing to have uh, more equitable contracts with their employees? Are they going to get rid of the, the gaudy displays of the state? Uh, fighter jets flying overhead and the national anthem being played absolutely not they're not going to do that they're not going to take any actions don cherry you know oh my god uh i don't know that the nhl has actually said anything about black lives matter yet and i i I will i will probably fall out of my seat if they do but what we're witnessing is the the state and uh, uh the ruling class essentially doing what they can to placate people when we see, for example, like police uh, taking a knee, we see we saw Marshall Anders take, take a knee last week. Uh, when we see, uh, you know, companies putting up Black Lives Matter signs in their windows, and these are exclusive organizations. When we see media companies uh, talking about how much they value Black Lives, and yet employees are leaving the companies because they believe that Black Lives are are not valued within those companies. That's when I say, I mean, for me, you know, uh, and I've been saying this for a while. Whatever. Um, means by which people find power in asserting their existence is completely up to them. But I, I tend to say things like black power because it's very uncomfortable and, and it's, it's, it's difficult to co-opt because you know what that means. Uh, and I'm not saying that we have to find some sort of uh, shibboleth or find some sort of jargon that even 
uh, companies and the state won't co-opt. What I am saying though is understand what the goal is here. Is the goal to be recognized as human beings? Well, I'm not interested in suing for my own humanity. I know that I'm a human being. I recognize myself as a human being. Agreement is not needed. Agreement on how to be treated as a human being is needed. But regardless of whether somebody wants to acknowledge me as humanist or not, I really could not care less because I understand myself as being a full-fledged human being with self-determination. So for me, it's just not saying the words that are enough. It's, it's granting the self-determination and rights as a citizen or as a human being. That's what's required. And that's something that we have to be willing to seize, not, not, not to be uh, handed over to us by any entity, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, to me, as a white person, you know, the white guilt is the, is a vanity project, you know, because ultimately it's about yeah. me. Well, it's not yeah. about it's not about white supremacy or the state or or changing anything. Uh, Joshua, I want to throw it back to you. We don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to give some time to something that's happening in the United States. And you are there, and you've had experience of both sides of the border. The U.S. elections coming up. My goodness, like it's months away, really. Um, what is your take on this? Like, what's going to happen? Talk to me. Yeah, uh, there's not, uh, speaking personally, I'm not all that excited about the US election. I, I'm excited about the current uprising in response to systemic police violence. I'm less excited about the election because we're looking at Joe Biden, we're uh, looking at someone who is almost across the board and throughout his history as a legislator who's been against everything that the movement's pushing for. So, uh, you know, personally, I, I mean, I obviously don't want Donald Trump to be elected, um, but we're not looking at, uh, I, I don't think that the election is going to be uh, deployed for really significant change. I think if anything, what's going to happen is that the election is going to be misperceived and used as the palliative that we've been discussing throughout this entire call. You know, if Biden wins, it will be a conversation of we've gotten rid of Trump. Let's change things. We'll increment back, you know, one percent in terms of progressive policy. And a lot of people are going to forget all of the, you know, significant structural change that's actually required, and that Joe Biden's not going to support. We're going to fall back into a conversation of electoral politics and what's required to win uh, uh, elections two years after his. Um, and we're not going to see the significant change that people are actually calling for. So I, I think that it's. I, I'm actually quite worried about the ways in which that election is going to be used to undermine what movements are pushing for currently. Just to, to push back a little bit on that. Um, so, but Biden, you know, in, in the, you know, in the contest with, with Bernie, um, you know, one of his winning uh, edges was the black vote. Um, just want to put that out there. Um, and the other thing is just heard Noam Chomsky on the radio the other day on Democracy Now! talking about how it's so important, this is Noam Chomsky, um, so important to get out and vote, uh, clearly not for Biden, but against Trump, because you got to get rid of this megalomaniac, uh, or uh, we're all dead kind of, uh, kind of message. Um, uh, so, uh, Andre, uh, what do you think? I think this comes from the same place that white guilt does, which is like this idea that systems don't necessarily exist or that they're not important. What's important is the individual contribution, that everything lives inside of the individual. And being able to like atomize um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the current fascism of the American state into uh, uh, something that has to do with Donald Trump is just so I, I I can't believe that somebody as uh, steeped in 
uh, both academic and political thought and, and uh, communicative thought as Noam Chomsky could say something like that. That's absolutely ridiculous. I, here's here's the Uno card. When when someone says, "Well, you have to go out and defeat Trump," uh, even if you if you if you decide that you're not voting, uh, a non-vote is a vote for Donald Trump. The Uno card reverse on that one is okay. But what if I was going to vote for Donald Trump and I just decided to not vote? Isn't that a vote for Joe Biden? Hmm? It's it's a uh, it's a hostage taking. It's a political hostage taking to tell people that they absolutely have to support a candidate that has uh, supported the carceral state has supported anti-black violence has was friends with segregationists has supported measures that further marginalize black communities i've talked about not wanting to live in a uh, i believe he said a racial jungle uh, when it came to uh, school busing and integration etc that is somebody who has learned absolutely nothing over the past several decades of his career in that because he because he receives broad swaths of support from the black community, and that is essentially off the strength of uh, his vice president his vice presidency under the Obama administration. The fact that he receives that kind of support to him is proof that he doesn't need to do anything for the community at all. To then turn around and tell people, black people especially, that they have to support somebody as vile and wretched as as he has been towards black communities as America in America, uh, somebody who who told a black radio host that if you don't vote for me, then you're not black or sorry, you ain't black. <laughs> you gotta be, you have to be completely out of your tree. My question is if somebody as inept and bumbling and whatever sort of adjectives people want to make up for this guy, if somebody that inept can enter the white house and operate the levers of the state such that it, it resembles, if not is a fascist state, then what do you have left when he leaves? what is it solved that he's left the mechanisms and the levers are intact so what is getting rid of donald trump solved that's my question joshua i want to attempt an answer to that <laughs> but in in light of in light of the in light of the the chomsky comment i didn't give you a chance to talk i largely agree i i think that there is like i i find quite frustrating the sense of entitlement uh people think there is towards black votes um, just because someone's relatively less fascistic. I, I also think that um, as a narrow addition to the conversation, like I do think that there are, are material harms that will be different. Like I do think that, uh, you know, Trump's recent anti-trans policy will be, would be different under a Biden administration. You know, it, it's, it's not that there will be no material distinctions between the two, but I find really frustrating the idea that someone who has been this routinely anti-Black throughout the entirety of his political career is someone that we think Black will just have to bend over and vote for. I think that that's, uh, that's just unfair. And it, it shows how frustrating uh, this, this political system actually is for those who are most marginalized by it. And Joshua, just very quickly, um, any hope for the Democratic Party at all? What's going to happen? Oh, recent, yeah, recent time has, 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 I mean, not that I had a tremendous amount of hope in the Democratic Party before, but like has, has only taken that away in terms of its, its clear and intractable commitment to as little change as possible uh, and to being seen, just as Canada likes to be seen in contrast with America, to be seen in contrast with the Republican Party. We're, we're ultimately looking at fundamentally conservative actors who are going to do as little as possible and who are, like Andre said, who are going to gaslight us into thinking that they're looking for big structural change and ultimately they're looking to do the, 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 the least possible in order to maintain their own power over us. 
Well, I want to thank you both. Uh, we're almost out of time uh, here on the Radical Reverend Show. You've been listening to the first of many, I hope, Law and Disorder panels. Uh, we've been talking to Andre uh, Demise, and he, as I've said before, writer, advocate, uh, fellow at Nathanson Center. We've been talking to Joshua Seeley Harrington, lawyer, doctoral candidate at Columbia, and also author uh, about lots of stuff. We'd love to hear from you out there in listener land, whether you're listening on podcast or on the radio. Send me your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, email, any old way you can. Uh, and of course, be generous because you're not gonna hear this kind of talk many other places in this town. So support it when you hear it. Uh, take care, be safe, uh, rise up. Till next time on the Radical Reverend Show. Mm -hmm.